especially when inclusion starts day one in kindergarten and you have a mix of kids of all abilities in a classroom, that's really formative years. And so those students are less likely to be discriminatory to a student with additional needs later on in school or later on in life. Partnering people up, all those types of things, building relationships that way can be way more powerful than we realize. Some of those students later on in life will graduate and become teachers or therapists or administrators. And that's how the change happens slowly over time. Welcome to Towards a Kinder Public, a podcast exploring issues in public space and ways to design kinder space that better meets our interconnected needs. I'm Kevin Castle, and along with Annie Chen, we are Kinder Public. Today's episode is Communication Access for All in Public Space, Understanding Disability Inclusion with Janae Romano. This is part two of our conversation with Janae a nurse with more than 20 years of experience working with individuals with neurological conditions that impact their communication abilities. She has extensive training in literacy for individuals with complex communication needs and has worked and trained with leaders in disability inclusion and the right to education for individuals with disabilities. If you have not accessed part one of our conversation, we invite you to go back to episode five and listen or read there first. A full transcript of that conversation is available on our website. In this episode, Janae explains how disability inclusion in kindergarten directly impacts inclusion in public space later in life. She explains the benefit we give to all children when we uphold inclusion and why the neuroplasticity of children makes them uniquely suited to including peers of different abilities. Individuals with disabilities do have a legal right to access public space and to a free and appropriate public education. This is established by several pieces of legislation, including the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. However, individuals with disabilities frequently face other barriers to public space and to access a free and appropriate public education. They may be denied access through repeated administrative requirements, including that they prove their cognitive ability through exhausting and expensive testing, which favors speech-typical, hearing-typical, neurotypical development, that they prove through expensive medical and specialist documentation that they require specific up-to-date disability supports, and that they enlist expensive legal representation to ensure the disability supports are made available. The question we pose in this episode is, what steps can each of us take to promote disability inclusion and communication access for all in public space? An extensive set of links to learn more are available on the podcast page of our website, kinderpublic.com, under this episode. We are grateful to have with us now, Janae Romano, an advocate for individuals with complex communication needs, to explain more. When I was navigating difficulties, I shouldn't say was navigating, <laughs> I, I am navigating difficulties with communication accommodations for my child. And you had so many really supportive ideas to share. One of them I've mentioned already, which is the principle that all communication is valid. In your experience, have you found that there are systems or philosophies within communication disability supports 
that are more accommodating of the individual with a disability and some that are more ableist and tend to work towards the comfort of the speech, typical, hearing, typical, neurotypical community. We've touched on this already a bit, but what, what is a framework that is centered around the individual with complex communication needs? Well, I do think any of our longstanding systems that we have in place are going to be more geared to the able-bodied individuals. They've been in place a long time. And um, Mm -hmm. even though our understanding has progressed, those systems are very slow to change. And again, it really is, is dependent on the people in charge, so to speak, who are almost never individuals who have had this experience or um, maybe have a child who had this experience. So I do f- find that, you know, our public school systems and even private school systems really struggle to accommodate the communication needs um, of complex communicators. Now that's not everywhere. There are definitely pockets in school districts who are really helping to lead the way in, in change. But again, it, it takes time. And I do think I just had a meeting with a team the other week and we were talking about this because they are working to move their whole district to an inclusion model versus segregation of special ed. And, you know, we were talking about how even though philosophically they're on board, they're like, yeah, we want to do this, that it really takes time to train, teach, mm-hmm. and honestly change the heart of the people doing the work. So say, for instance, a gen ed teacher who has a student pushing into their their gen ed class who has a a communication need. In an ideal world, that gen ed teacher should know, use, model all that one individual student's communication throughout the time that they're there. That's really hard and scary for a lot of those gen ed teachers because they really were not trained. Even uh, a lot of our special ed teachers are not trained in these newer modalities as well. And so... I think a lot of times when people are resistant to this, it comes from their own fear. It comes from their own guilt, perhaps. I've seen that before because some of these people have been in the teaching world for years. And (laughs) my philosophy is once you know better, you do better. Thank you, Maya Angelou. (laughs) But some people, they feel as a threat, you know, to what they've done in the past. And then, well, then you have to feel bad that you didn't, you know, provide something for someone else. I work frequently with an organization called Rhett University and their founder, Susan Norwell. I love to have people listen to her speak about her journey because this is, this is what she does. She lives, breathes. She's been doing it for over 30 years. And she tells a story about a young woman who was a little girl when she met her and she had a diagnosis of autism. And so she taught her to read and write using alternative methods. And then later that girl was found out she was misdiagnosed and she was diagnosed with Brett syndrome, which at the time there wasn't even an attempt to teach children with Brett syndrome how to read or write. They were deemed intellectually disabled um, because there was no way to prove that they could understand. And so it's really a great story that she tells because you can see her humility. Immediately, she realized like, well, I'm working with these other students who have Rett syndrome, but I'm not treating them fairly because of a diagnosis that was written on a piece of paper and a training I had, you know? And so she started realizing if I could teach this girl how to read and write and all this time she really had Rett syndrome, then I could potentially teach. There's that potential there for everybody. 
And so that's a, a term you hear a lot of in the complex communication world. And I won't go into the long history. Mm-hmm. Now it's presumed competence. We'll put it that way. There's a, a little bit different definition, I think, for like the everyday person. So a lot of times I'll, I'll if I'm talking to maybe someone not in the education field, I'll say assume it- intelligence. Essentially, it's treat everybody kindly and with respect because you don't know what someone else is capable of. And I think when you go and look at some of the lived experience, that's the big takeaway for me. It's not hurting anybody for you to assume when I talk to this person that they're understanding everything I say. If, if they don't, that's okay. Mm-hmm. But I assume that everybody has the potential to learn, to communicate in some way. Each person, no matter what their abilities have value in our society, I think educationally, but also I see this a lot in the medical field as well, being a nurse. One of the amazing things that has happened as a result of a lot of complex communicators actually getting access to robust communication is that, you know, I see even now young girls advocating for themselves when they're at a doctor's appointment or hospitalized that in the past just wouldn't be heard of. Parents are the ones to do that. And of course, parents are still really important, but the value um, and, and really the focus, I think, needs to be on teaching robust communication, literacy. If you can read and if you can write, you can communicate anything. The systems we have in place fall very short <laughs> of, of mm-hmm. what my ideals would be. <laughs> but then also you think of other systems we have in place, just everyday stuff, the DMV, going to a museum or any public spaces. Yes. They're made for individuals who use speech primarily to communicate. And we have seen minimal advancement in this area. And that is is something that I, I would like to see more of is public spaces being more accessible to individuals with communication barriers, even if it's something simple. So like if I go to Walmart, Pharmacy, I noticed this the other day. Walmart Pharmacy, it's, they have a sign. If English is your not your first language and you need an interpreter, call this phone number and they provide an interpreter for you. But how great would it be to have a sign that said, if you are a complex communicator or you use AAC, we have some sort of very simple communication board that would transverse because there's lots of different AAC devices and languages within those. But most individuals who have had AAC have all been introduced to some basic symbol-based communication. So, you know, it is trickier with complex communication because, like I said, everything is individualized and everything is nuanced from individual to individual. But I do think we could make strides in that area. Mm -hmm. The one area I've seen this happen the most is playgrounds. They will have a playground-themed communication board at the playground. And so that would be great. To go to a museum, right? Maybe you're at an art museum Mm -hmm. and art is such a personal experience. Go to an art museum, you want to explain how that piece of art makes you feel. Mm -hmm. Or, um, (laughs) you know, again, maybe you hate it. (laughs) Maybe you don't get it. You're like, oh, this person seeing something I don't see. But wouldn't it be great to have a little symbol-based communication board next to each placard that tells, you know, who the artist was and so forth, where non-speaking individuals could participate in that. A lot of our complex communicators who use eye gaze have become artists in their own right using their eyes. And so I think personal expression is super, super important. Mm -hmm. And I'd love, love, love to see that more accessible everywhere. I do think it really starts with our education system, because unless we can change that to be more inclusive of all communication styles, then 
the broader society, you know, won't latch onto that. There's a, a couple of links that I'll share with you. I think the one has a story from Joe who tells a story about <laughs> Joe is has Rett syndrome. She's from Canada and she she's a spitfire, but she was at an event one time and she went to order a beer, but she was underage. <laughs> but because she had a communication device, she uses a, an eye gaze AAC device and she could speak <laughs> her own thoughts. The bartender was going to give her that drink, <laughs> you know, because, because that's the power of authentic communication. Her, one of her companions had to jump in and be like, well, she's not of age to have that, but we are not advocating underage drinking on this episode. <laughs> no, we are not. But what I am, but what I am advocating is for every person to be able to make bad life choices. <laughs> yeah. That's and authentic communication. Now, communication necessary to facilitate. Yeah, like, you know, everybody should have the right to do dumb things and say dumb things and, and, and get in trouble. That is a huge, a huge thing um, that I see with a lot of the folks that I work with. It's like, oh, they, you know, we don't want to put a bad word on their device or something like that. But you know what? That is a right. It's a right to say something you shouldn't. And there's going to be a consequence for that, of course. And that's, I think, just a valuable, important life lesson. Right? Um, but if, yeah, if yeah. people are not given the opportunity, they're not going to learn that lesson. That's like a very interesting form of censorship that you're talking about, because um, those words do have functions for us so biologically and otherwise so it's really interesting it's like almost not giving people the option to say no or to again it comes back to uh, not being able to express dissent and this is another topic i i talk about a lot because it doesn't get spoken a lot about because people don't like to think about it but non-speakers are at a significantly higher risk for abuse and so the mm -hmm. to me the way to combat that is communication, right? Forceful communication. Yes. yes. Um, yeah. I'm going to tell on you, like I, I create boards for, for my folks that I work with, like you're mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I want them to be able to tell me those things yeah. about adults and let them know that it's okay to use those forceful words. In fact, it's, it's really important. That's one of the things that always bothered me. And even does now, because even though there's more access to communication than there used to be, I still see a lot of like restricting of icons on devices or, you know, limiting page sets so that, you know, we're taking away buttons and all that. Mm. But what you're doing is, is really restricting someone's autonomy. They should be able to say those things. And I think it's critically important to hold people accountable. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that I always push inclusion is also for the same purpose. You know, if there's some something going on that shouldn't be, if your child is in a room with speaking children, there is a much higher likelihood that that's going to come to light. And I have unfortunately seen cases where, you know, the only thing that the parents had to go on was behavior. Something's wrong. My kid's acting up. I'm not sure. The parents instinctively know that. But then the, um, you know, the adults in question are kind of shielded because their child can't go home and say, hey, this person did this. And I think that that is something really important to consider for parents, I'm sure, but also 
all of us, <laughs> you know, I'm a, I'm a nurse. I'm a mandatory reporter. Um, my husband's a school bus driver and he just had a training in mandatory reporting and things like that. And so, you know, not being afraid to speak up as an adult, but more importantly, giving everyone the tools to speak up for themselves is so, so important. And I think until communication is really taken seriously in that light, if for no other reason, that's a reason to, to, to give people access to a full robust communication system. I just feel very, very strongly about that one. <laughs> right, right. Thank you for bringing that up. So I wanted to ask, you know, are there public institutions or public resources that we should focus on for improvements in accommodating complex communication? And are there safety or other urgent factors? in these issues. And I feel like you've just touched. Yeah, on so I, I kind of just touched on, on some of those things. I think one thing that would be great to see is, you know, we have some laws in place, and it's different from state to state, different state laws. But I would like to see a shift from so currently, say you're having a hard time with uh, maybe a school district providing necessary services to your complex communicator, there is a process that you can go through, right? You can have meetings, you can try and overcome it that way. You can file state complaints, you can ultimately get a lawyer and do process and go to court, and all of those things. And so that's better than it used to be, there were always those protections. But my issue with that is that that is all on the onus of the parent, instead of putting the needs of the student first. So I would like to see the <laughs> the districts have to be the ones to prove that <laughs> right now it's the parents have to prove that the student needs XYZ. I would like to have it the other way around where, where the district has to prove that the student doesn't need XYZ. And so I see this a lot of times there is this kind of loophole, I guess is the best way to put it, put it that a lot of services are challenged. Well, you know, we only have to provide what's necessary for them to access their education. I've seen this multiple times with students that I've worked with. And that is absolutely true. But in some cases, the services that are being denied can literally impact the student's health. And <laughs> I literally had to say to a team one time, you're saying that this decrease of services isn't your thing because it's a medical need, not an educational need. But my thing is, if my patient isn't or if the student isn't here because the student had complex medical needs as well, mm -hmm. if this decrease causes medical issues for them, they're gone, you know? And it seems like an extreme dramatic thing to say, but it's the reality for some of these students who have medical complexities. If they're not getting PT in school, their health mm -hmm. is at risk. And trying to fit in a all these extra PT sessions after school usually is not logistically possible for most families. And so, you know, I, I think it depends on the people who are in charge <laughs> to sign off on those mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it comes down to person to person, which could be a great thing too. But conversely, you know, a lot of um, resistance to providing necessary services is monetary based or um, the old, you know, well, we don't have the, we don't have the resources, but legally, that's not an excuse not to provide a necessary service to a student, according to the federal law, disability law. We have some laws in place that help support 
the rights of those who are disabled, but I feel that they're highly lacking and that um, districts know which families can afford to hire a lawyer and go through that whole process. It's very expensive to do and who can't. (laughs) And so I have seen that as a pattern, our system as it is right now, you know, that's not equitable. That's not equitable services. I guess I just want to make the point again that we know complex communication needs. We know what that is. I don't think the public widely knows what it is. And I don't think that we're accommodating it, but it's a known need, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things that those who who are advocates for inclusion hope to change Mm -hmm. because the results of inclusion are that the speaking children or the neurotypical children in the gen ed classes, they start to see those with disabilities of all types as equal parts of their community versus inferior to them within the community. And I think that's really important. Um, So by segregating our students, it gives the impression that they're less than and, and we know, of course, that that's not true. But it also brings into awareness that there are all these different ways to communicate. And I will say that, especially when inclusion starts like day one kindergarten, and you have a mix of kids of all abilities in a classroom, that's really formative years. And so those students are less likely to be discriminatory to a student with additional needs later on in school or later on in life, because it's normalized. And it's just part of what it is. And I love to see the benefits for all students when we're including everyone together, because the ones who are really good at figuring out these augmentative forms of communication are the other students, (laughs) the other same age peers. They're not afraid to go in and like ask questions. And we even, you know, promote uh, other students having ways to model for their peers who have complex communication needs, partnering people up, all those types of things, building relationships that way can be way more powerful than than we realize. Some of those students later on in life will graduate and become teachers or therapists or administrators. And that's how the change happens slowly over time. People who now have exposure and experience what it is to have a friend who communicates differently. And that friend is just as valuable. I see this with my own children who you know, kind of are <laughs> because they, they've been exposed to this since birth. <laughs> um, and so uh, one of their friends who's a complex communicator during the pandemic in particular, she was struggling with online school. And yet when we would do Zoom sessions with them and we do science experiments together and, you know, because my kids have the tools, they're up there on the screen, like using the communication board and all those types of things. It just was like a normal part of our experience together. That's just part of their friendship is that type of communication. This friend in particular, sometimes she, her apraxia will kick in and she will log out of our, our meets. And so my boys are like, oh, she'll be back you know, when her body's ready. (laughs) Oh, how sweet. And so I think watching those interactions that are kind of untainted by (laughs) the influences of the current system, um, that's kind of where my hope resides, because it can be very frustrating to fight systems that are are not inclusive. But I do think we're making headway. (laughs) It's just very slow. And I do hope that if we can even inch towards a more inclusive society at large, um, but starting in schools and medical institutions, 
as part of teachers trainings, I think that we mm-hmm. will see a benefit for everyone, not just our complex communicators, really everybody, because we have so much that we can contribute to one another. And I am endlessly amazed by some of the voices of complex communicators and the things that they accomplish and the ways that they change people's perceptions just by being them. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's, that's where the magic is. What steps can businesses and public-facing staff take to improve access to public life for individuals with complex communication needs? I think the first thing is awareness. As you mentioned, a lot of the general public, if you don't know somebody or you know love somebody who has these type of needs, it's not in the general collective's consciousness. And so bringing that to the forefront is the first thing. I think social media, honestly, I, I have... I have a love-hate relationship with technology in general. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. Our family is probably one of the last existing families without a cell phone. <laughs> but I do think that there is huge power in technology and in social media. Without technology, we wouldn't have eye gaze. And so many of my friends wouldn't be able to tell me all the wonderful things that they tell me. So um, I'm not anti-technology or even anti-social media. But I think when used in the right way, we can start to see more diversity of the world, whether it be culturally or in this realm of disability. And again, we start to see people as people versus preconceived notions some stereotype in our minds. Um, and so I follow lots and lots of individuals who have those lived experiences. And I love to hear their thoughts and I read their blogs and their Instagram accounts and, and those types of things. And I share them, share them, share them. I love uh, special books for special kids is a, a YouTube channel that is awesome. And they do interviews with people from all walks of life with all sorts of different abilities or challenges in a very holistic and respectful way. Chris, who runs it, kind of reminds me of like the modern day Mr. Rogers, (laughs) his way of being and the way he explains, you know, his interaction. So there's definitely those platforms out there. I think those of us who love people who have communication needs, the more we share that with others, which is hard sometimes for me, and I'm not even a parent. (laughs) But those who are parents, I know it's like an emotional, emotional um, taxing sometimes to constantly be advocating and explaining. But I do think the more visible this is, the better. And really listening to the, the voices out there who live it, because I will say, I am always learning. I think back to like some of my preconceived notions from when I first started working with Kim to now are huge. And I may not even agree. It's okay to disagree with people with disabilities, FYI. <laughs> um, I, do, I do get that like other end of the spectrum. Sometimes people are like, well, they said it. Different. Even within the community of individuals who have disabilities, there's a broad spectrum of opinion about some of these things. But I think hearing all of them are really important. Um, and I know that for me, uh, I've shifted the way I talk. The words that I use are more mindful. And even those ones that I've come to, I'm willing to change again because um, it's not really about me. It's about representing a community and their experience. So for instance, I used to say, when speaking about Rett syndrome, I would say, oh, my friend Kim suffered from Rett syndrome. And I don't use the word suffer anymore. <laughs> Especially um, since mm-hmm. Kim passed, I do a lot of advocacy or awareness campaigns. And I was out at local businesses handing out flyers and one of the women businesses, and she was very well-intentioned and sweet. And she saw, she said, oh, that poor thing. It like startled me because yes, it was a tragedy that she only lived to 28. 
but Mm. she lived such a joyful, vibrant life. She had struggles, but we all have struggles. She had a family who was unlike anything I'd, I personally have experienced and I, that I learned so much from them as a family as well. And I thought, you know, I don't want people to look at her life in pity. Mm-hmm. That's not what she was about. If anything, I always say Tim taught me how to be an optimist. I'm a pessimist by by nature, I think, or maybe a realist, I would say. But Kim taught me so much about hope and light and finding joy, even when there's struggle and, and so many deep, profound things. And I think when we say somebody suffers from a certain condition, that just puts it at a very surface level. So now I change my verbiage to people living with Rett syndrome, because that's what they're doing. They're living. Rett syndrome is a part of that. There is no getting around it. And that's okay. They can be proud of that, that ability to do things differently than the rest of us. And there's value in that. And I think that that's important to remember and shift in our culture. I see a lot of parents and a lot of non-speakers or uh, disabled folks saying, you know, I don't want to be your inspiration. (laughs) I'm just living my life. And that's great to have people take note like, hey, my notion of what this person was capable of obviously is different. And to be moved by that, that's okay. It's great to celebrate people, including other people. But we also have to walk a fine line there because this is their life. You know, their feelings are valid. (laughs) That's important. I like to hear the criticisms uh, that they have of the able body, able person's approach or mentality, Mm -hmm. because it challenges my own preconceived notions. And I think that's where we grow. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We've covered everything so well. Is there anything that you want to add? I just want us to see people. I think that at the end of the day, if you can put connection as the highest value, relationship as the highest value, all those other things come with that. Because if you truly value someone, you want to hear what they have to say. And you will do whatever to make sure they have the opportunity to say that. You will see a barrier, not as a sentence, a life sentence, but as a challenge to overcome. The families that I know who have children with complex communication needs or physical disabilities, they are the greatest like Jerry Riggers, <laughs> um, tinkerers. Because they will do anything so that their kid can participate in whatever said activity or event or what have you. And that's because of the relationship and connection. And so I think if we start there and then we expand out from there, that's really the heart of what it is to be human. And and that's what it is at the heart of communication. And in order to have full access to communication, students need to have the ability to use whatever tools they need in whatever setting they're in, as well as access to learning full literacy, how to read and write. Because if you can learn to read and write, you can say anything. If we just give people four little icons, they can say four little things. That's the main thing that I push for is for students just to have the same access to education as all the other um, students in the general ed setting. It's really, really a necessary shift Mm -hmm. in terms of inclusion and in terms of honestly, just mindset, being open to learning something new. Yeah. Stepping outside of a box. Right. And I know that there are areas like that out there because I have such a vast network of friends who whose children have complex communication needs. So I see there are kids with Rett syndrome yeah. that are at grade level or above, top of their class, getting scholarships for college and things like that. So I know it is possible. My friend Kim was 
21 when she, she was in a BOCES program and her parents had to fight for her to get that program where there was some sort of learning, not just sitting in front of a TV all day. Kim basically had been robbed of a education that she had a right to. It's important. It's important work. Yes. I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Subscribe to Towards a Kinder Public on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. We would love your feedback. To share information about issues in public space and spaces that are doing things right, email podcast at kinderpublic.com. Links to more information about the guests and topics mentioned, as well as a full transcript of the conversation, are available on the podcast section of our website, kinderpublic.com. Visit our website to learn more about our work. I'm Kevin Castle. Our guest has been Janae Romano, Complex Communication Needs Advocate. Thanks for listening. I wish you a good week.